Greetings from Long Island, where every highway is a sunrise. It's time for Dave's Gone By, an hour of comedy, talk, and music brought to you by Total Theater, with your host, Dave Lefkowitz. You've never heard anything like it, so sit back, relax, squeal if you must. Here's the host of Dave's Gone By, Dave! Tropical hot dog night! Well, there goes the neighborhood. Welcome, everybody, to Dave's Gone By on this last Thursday of September 2005. It's our 144th episode, so now when people call the show gross, they'll be numerically correct. But you'll be making a gross mistake if you stop listening over the next hour, because we have three great segments for you on this mix of comedy, talk, radio, and music that we do every week on this program. First, tonight, we'll have the news gone by, our weekend update-style look at current events, including stories this week about potty breaks, potatoes, penguins, and psychopaths. Towards the end of the show, we'll also have a skit for all of you Sesame Street fans out there who are not easily offended, and in between, a special guest, playwright and screenwriter Michael Weller. He's best known for his play Moon Children and for adapting E.L. Doctorow's novel Ragtime into that unforgettable Milos Forman movie. And I definitely want to ask Michael Weller about that, not just because it was such a fine film, but because Jimmy Cagney was in it. And I'd love to hear if he has any memories, any anecdotes about that. All this and more tonight on Dave's Gone By, brought to you by the Copy Kings at Hewlett Minuteman Press and the Theater Gods at Performing Arts Insider Magazine, and hosted by me, Dave Lefkowitz, radio personality, theater critic, and silly-ass cineast. So don't go away. The News Gone By starts in less than a minute. Okay, so your business proposal has been typed, proofread, photoshopped, and given a nice cover. Now, all you need is 20 spiral-bound copies and a thousand printings of your latest brochure. Your Xerox can't do it. Your mailroom can't do it. Hewlett Minuteman Press can do it all. Your one-stop printing shop, Minuteman, 1315 Broadway in Hewlett. Open six days a week, 10% off for Dave's Gone By listeners. Family-owned Minuteman. Their service can't be duplicated. More bad news. That's all you hear. Bad news. But here's good news. Sunday nights at 7 on WGBB, Joe Salzone covers current events with humor and smarts on Worldview, a fast hour of interviews, news, and opinion, plus my weekly theater segment, Broadview. 7 p.m. Sundays, Worldview, and welcome to it. My radio's on, the news is all bad, but it's good to relax. Welcome back to Dave's Gone By. It's time for the news gone by. A look at world and local events of the past week from a sick, well, and weller perspective. Well, the depressing and horrific stories kept coming in long after Hurricane Katrina turned New Orleans and Biloxi into swimming pools. The worst was New Orleans Memorial Medical Center, where they found 45 dead patients. 
The hospital had been abandoned shortly after the floods, and when investigators went back in a week later, they found all these corpses floating on the ground floor. A spokesman for the White House said, This is a heartbreaking chapter in the hurricane saga. A tragic loss of life for these people's loved ones and for all America. A terrible tragedy in human terms that... What? They were black? Oh, well, just bury them and get on with it. Speaking of fearless loser, did you catch that story about President Bush at the UN summit two weeks ago? During one of the speeches, Bush was seen writing a secret note to Condoleezza Rice. And for once, the Freedom Act, omnipresent surveillance, and overall curtailment of privacy in American life came back to haunt the man in charge. All the world actually got to see what was in that note. Was it a brilliant idea for world peace? Was it a new strategy for dealing with North Korea? Was it a heartfelt apologia for the hurricane fiasco? No. A Reuters cameraman with a high-powered lens was able to zoom in on George Bush's note to the Secretary of State, which read, and I quote, I think I may need a bathroom break, question mark. Is this possible, question mark? Now, the embarrassing part in all this is not having to make a tinkle, it happens to all of us, or that Georgie Boy wanted to follow protocol and not make a scene by leaving the room at a sensitive time. But you're wondering, or if you're wondering, why this man can't catch Osama bin Laden? Why it took him 72 hours to send help to Biloxi? And why health care, social security, and poverty are in even worse shape than they were when he took office? Well, just look at his first sentence. I think I may need a bathroom break. Question mark. You think you may? You're not sure? Like, I think my nose might be running. Let me check. Whoops, did that fart come out of me? Let me smell. Uh, yes, I believe I possibly feel a burning sensation around the rim of my bunghole. There's a good chance, a good chance, that broccoli stench came from me. Three more years, folks. Three more years. You know the old saying about someone so incompetent they wouldn't even elect him rat catcher? Well, what do you do with incompetent rat catchers? That's what they're trying to figure out in New Delhi, where the government's rat surveillance department, that is the actual English translation, the rat surveillance department, has not caught a rodent in more than 10 years. Rat patrols were a big deal in 1994 when officials were trying to contain a plague outbreak. But since then, the mouse population hasn't gone down, just the mouse hunting. 97 people are on the payroll in the rat surveillance department, all of them paid about $77 per month for catching mice. Expected, well, expecting to be fired, all 97 have resigned from the department, and not surprisingly, they've all quickly found work in the United States in the disaster preparedness wing of FEMA. You know, Tolstoy was probably right when he opened Anna Karenina with the line, all happy families are alike, all unhappy families are miserable in their own special way. Take, for example, the Gravel family of Clarksville Township, Ohio. How do you keep a brood of 11 adopted and foster children, many of them with mental problems, in line? 
by putting them in cages. That's how 11 kids from ages 1 to 14 lived in cages built into the walls of the Gravel house. No pillows, no blankets, and alarms rigged to go off in case of escape. Authorities are mulling a raft of charges against the custodians and, assumedly, the adoption agencies they used. Putting a silver lining on the story was former First Lady Barbara Bush, who was visiting Clarksville Township at the time, and said, Hey, it could have been worse. They could have been living in Cleveland. In science news, according to a study reported in the London Times, functional psychopaths make the best Wall Street traders. A team of American scientists studied competitors in an investment game, and the biggest winners were the ones with brain lesions and limited empathy. Apparently, normal emotions can slow down decision-making and hinder people from taking big risks. Therefore, and this is a quote from the Reuters story, the emotionally impaired are more willing to gamble, and people with brain damage make better financial decisions, unquote. You know, I really don't mind having retards and sociopaths running Wall Street, so long as they stop running the White House. In celebrity news, congratulations to pop star Britney Spears, who last week gave birth to a bouncing baby boy. The 23-year-old Spears and her husband Kevin Federline were married last year and... Oh, who cares? We just want to see the breastfeeding. Also in celebrity news, congratulations to Bill Cosby, who won his legal fight for proprietorship of FatAlbert.org. Cosby had complained that its prior owner pointed the domain name to an X-rated webpage. Arbitrators agreed that Cosby was entitled to own FatAlbert.org because it is so closely associated with his persona. For the same reason, they also allowed Cosby to keep the domain names SmugHasBeen.com and RoofyPushingMilfMolester.net. In food news, congratulations to the town of Grand Forks, North Dakota. Population something or other. Yahoo! They beat their own record of two years ago of most French fries consumed in one day. 4,518 pounds slathered in 113 gallons of ketchup. The event was part of the 40th annual Potato Bowl USA, and everybody had a fabulous time, except the counter people who looked confused and kept asking, you won't meet with that? Ah, romance. I mean, these days, it all seems like sex and work and expensive weddings, while the true romantic gesture is a thing of the past. But oh, how lovely to learn that sweet, tender courtship is still with us. Witness this New York Post story from a couple of weeks ago. I'm almost going to read it verbatim. It's that beautiful. A Queens College student has been ordered to return the $53,000 engagement ring given to her by her millionaire ex-boyfriend. Her boyfriend also gave her, allegedly, what may be one of the crudest wedding proposals of all time. Emily de Gaetano was 18 years old and very pregnant when she says Vito William Lucchetti Jr., age 38, popped the question. So already we have a May-December thing going on. And when Lucchetti asked for her betrothal, he did it in a rather unorthodox way. According to court papers, Emily explained, quote, During the late stages of my pregnancy, 
Vigo summoned me into the bedroom and requested that I perform a sex act on him. And by the way, in the New York Post story, the words sex act were in brackets, so I believe in court, Emily used the actual phrase. Always better to be clear when it's for the record. Anyway, Emily continues, After protesting, I agreed. Vigo waited until I was on my knees, and then he knelt to join me and said, <laughs> Just kidding, here you go, and handed me the ring. Is that the sweetest thing you've ever heard? Get your incredibly pregnant girlfriend to kneel down for a little knob-gobbling, and then, like Emerald, BAM! Here's that ring you wanted! And the story gets even better. Emily admits that it wasn't a real proposal. Vigo did not actually say the words, Will you marry me? So, afterwards, she did have to return the ring. She also left him in May, after she found their baby choking on a bullet from Vigo's secret stash of guns and ammo. I'm telling you, kids get into everything. Vigo's lawyer says, quote, My client strenuously denies wrongdoing and inappropriate behavior. And Vigo also asked the judge for a continuance by leaning over and peeing on the court reporter and then saying, Just kidding. Can I have some more time? Here's a story from Patna, India, which is surprising only because it usually happens in China. An illegal fireworks factory, three illegal fireworks factories, actually, were all next to each other in a small village. One caught fire, then another, then the other, resulting in at least 30 deaths and 50 serious injuries. And the brand new snack, Pop Kebab. In animal news, you gotta hand it to the New York Post, sometimes. It's a rag, but nobody does a headline like the New York Post. In a story about gay penguins at the Central Park Zoo, the headline read, Chili Willies. As someone who has written his share of headlines over the years, my compliments. The story itself, however, is a tale to warm the heart of any Christian fundamentalist. Silo, the gay penguin, has gone straight. He dumped his male lover, Roy, of six years when Scrabby, the female penguin from SeaWorld, was introduced into the habitat. The love triangle has come as a blow, no pun intended, to the gay human community because Silo and Roy had become mascots of a sort because they had a committed relationship, they had sex, they shared kind of a nest, and they even raised a chick from an egg provided to them by the zoo. But now Roy has been jilted like an old queen, and Silo is busy shacking with Scrappy. These are all, by the way, little different from the usual penguins that we're used to seeing. The breed has a flatter, squashed-looking face, and a black line that runs from the back of the neck all around under their heads. That's why they're called chin-strap penguins. Of course, newly hetero Silo may give up the chin-strap, since he'll no longer need to hold his jaw open for long periods of time. Finally, in entertainment news, Tim Burton is having a busy and successful year, first with Charlie and the Chocolate Factory grossing $200 million, and his new claymation movie getting rave reviews from most critics. There was one difficult moment, though, when Burton faced a lawsuit over the new film. But Anna Nicole Smith withdrew the complaint when informed that the corpse bride was not about her. 
And that's the news gone by for September 29, 2005. Please send your comments, opinions, and pop kebab to Dave's Gone By. Box 62, Hewlett, New York, 11557-0062. That's Dave's Gone By, P.O. Box 62, Hewlett, New York, 11557-0062. You can also email davesgoneby at aol.com. Or give us a look at davesgoneby.org. Either way, we want to hear from you and about you and what you think about us. If you like the show, tell your neighbors, tell your friends, your news groups, tell people in the radio biz, terrestrial and otherwise, so we can take the show to the next level in New York and all over the nation. But if nothing else, just take a minute to get in touch. Send email, letters, postcards, packages, but please, no potato bowl contests. It's Thursday, not Friday. Back after this. And that was news. If that was news. That was very, very, very special news. These are the Daves, my friend, the perfect radio blend of comedy, talk, radio, and more. Yes, these are the Daves, more than 80 episodes of Daves Gone By on compact disc for your listening pleasure. Long drive home? Pop in a Dave. In the mood for a funny sketch? Pop in a Dave. All CDs come in jewel cases with full packaging, just $12, new low price. Same free shipping and handling. Add another dollar and I'll autograph the cover. Don't know which episode? Visit davesgoneby.org or email davesgoneby at aol.com and ask for the CD list. These are the Daves, my friend. Makes a great gift to send. Give them a try if you love Daves Gone By. Welcome back to Dave's Gone By on AM 1240 WGBB in Freeport, New York and live streaming on the web at am1240wgbb.com and I have a guest on the phone with me a playwright that uh, you've probably heard of because, well, I guess his best known play was uh, Moon Children but that's going back a few years but he's had others since including Spoils of War he's also written some screenplays to films that you've all seen and he's having a very, very cool honor an honor that, let's see, who else has had that honor? Neil Simon? August Wilson, and um, hmm, who, who else of recent note? Have to think about that. But well, if you, got, Eugene O'Neill. Eugene, well, okay, if we move backwards, right. uh, well, let's see, London Fontaine weren't playwrights, but we're kind of giving it away at that point. Um, yes, I've got a, a guy who's getting a theater named after him. Oh, and how can I forget Peter Norton, who's having every other theater <laughs> after him in New York. But um, I've got Michael Weller. On the phone, playwright Michael Weller, and I'm very happy to have him. Welcome, Michael. Hiya. Well, first of all, you're involved in some, on some level with the Broken Watch Theater Company, which is the group that is naming the theater after you. A little bit. I'm I'm in, I'm sort of involved with a number of theaters around the city. One of them is the Hypothetical Theater Company. The other is Broken Watch. Mm-hmm. And uh, most um, uh, actively is the Cherry Lane where I'm sort of supervising a mentor program there, where we put together experienced playwrights and young playwrights and do three productions a year um, after the experienced playwrights help them along for eight months or so. And uh, we've had a huge success with that. We've actually had one play move to Broadway a couple seasons ago. Well, what play was that? Uh, it was 16 Wounded by Eliam Cream. 
Right. Most of about the uh, the terrorists yep. who falls in love with them. That's right. Well, what are your tips for being a playwright? Well, what, are, what are some of the tips that you can give folks who are, or want to do that? Well, hmm. Hmm. Uh, that's <laughs> I've never asked that question. I, I, I'm I'm so used to doing it now. I don't. I, I, it's more. I think I, I couldn't bear the withdrawal uh, symptoms if I. Did. <laughs> um, I just like it. I like. I love the rehearsal process most of all. I love watching actors say my lines and figure out things that I never considered when I was writing. Um, I like the fact that I control my work when I'm a playwright, unlike when I write movies and TV, where the executives control. They hire me and they control what I write. So I like the pride of authorship I can have as a playwright. Um, I like. Uh, being able to tell my own stories my own way without interference. Um, that's a big kick. And I just like, in the end, shaping a story that's riveting from start to finish. When I watch an audience hanging on every word, I, I think, well, this is pretty cool. Well, let me ask, um, first of all, so you mentioned um, Hollywood, because you wrote the, the screenplays for Ragtime, which is an absolutely wonderful movie, and you also did the adaptation for the musical Hair. Right. Um, could you have stayed in the business? Could you have been a working, living, eating playwright? Or did at some point Hollywood have to, does it have to, so you can make a living in this field? Oh, yeah. I think playwriting is not, um, is not a, a kind of thing that pays a living anymore. I think the last person I know who makes, made a decent living out of it year after year was Neil Simon, although there are a number of playwrights who kind of piece together enough of a living to, to pay the rent, I think. But generally, if you're going to be a playwright, you have to find a day job, and it's you most usually teaching. Um, some people just, I think, have jobs in unrelated fields, and others do screenwriting and, uh, and, and television writing to make a living. Did you jump right in? I'm going to say jump right in, but um, since I think Moon Children goes back to, what, 1970? Yeah, 70, um, hang on, something like that. It was yeah. in London under a different title. Like right, that, yeah. under cancer, right. I mean, that was, you were pretty young, I assume, at that point. So it was the first job out of, whatever, college, or it's not like you were in other fields and then wrote a play and it got done. Well, not quite. <laughs> no, it wasn't quite like that. Oh, wow. I actually wrote... I wrote um, I was a composer to begin with. I wrote, um, oh. you know, symphonies and string quartets and things like that. And then I wrote a musical for theater. And I, I wasn't that happy with the text, you know. I thought my music was pretty good, but I didn't think that the play was that great. So I got a book about how to write a play. And I, it advised me to use a, an existing source of material, not to try to make up my own story. So I found a book I liked. And I wrote that as a play, figuring I'll write the score when it's all done. And I presented it to this group I always worked with on original musical comedies and stuff at school. And they said I couldn't do the score, they, but, but they accepted the book. And that's the first time I, <laughs> I wrote a play. It was almost by accident. But I, I found I had a real knack for it. It came naturally to me, which music didn't. And it was very successful, so I never looked back. So that, that first play was Moon Children, then? No, no. Oh, no, 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 Lord, no, 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 no. Moon Children was about my... my 14th player. Oh, I'm, forgive me. I didn't, I didn't realize that at all. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, 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 I knocked around the sort of alternate theater movement in London for a number of years and had a bunch of work done here and there. And uh, I was picked up at, the, at, a, at a gathering called the National Union of Students uh, Drama 
um, festival where I'd done a one-night play, and the playwright Christopher Hampton saw it and brought me to the attention of the Royal Court Theater, and they commissioned Moon Children. Let me ask, I, even before we uh, got on the air, you, you were a little out of breath because you were bicycling, right. and you know you wrote... Moon Children, you, and you uh, worked on hair and stuff. Do you have a certain kind of 1960s leftish sensibility, or is that I'm not just reading into that from picking a few pieces from your your day and career? Oh, I see. Uh, I don't know. I think you'd have to ask other people about that. I, I don't think of myself consciously as having anything as defined as that. I mean, I write in a lot of different styles. And I come at things from a lot of different angles depending on the material. So, I mean, obviously anybody is a, a product of their time, but I don't think I'm... I mean, I was, my parents were communists, and they met as communists, but I wasn't raised in any particular political climate or religion or anything like that. I was allowed to kind of find my own way. But I would say that... Let's, and my wife is a raised Republican oh, God. in a small town <laughs> well, so was in I, California. I so, yeah. you know, we're sort of all over the place at home. I mean, it's a hard question to answer. I don't, I don't know what you would call me. If you like superheroes, Batman and Robin are okay. But if you like hard rock music and hardcore comedy, try Jimmy and Robin. That's right, the dynamic and diarrheic duo with live bands playing the best metal, punk, and more. Jimmy and Robin, Midnight Fridays on WGBB. Pow! And Dave Lefkowitz is here for the play-by-play. The play-by-play-by-play by Dave in his book of plays, Marriage, Babies, and the End of the World. Comedies, satirical, silly, sad, and strange, all collected in a great-looking book. Just $20 hardcover, $12 soft. Email davesgoneby at aol.com or visit davesgoneby.org for marriage, babies, and the end of the world. Da-da-da-da-da-da! Play Dave! Hi, this is playwright Michael Weller. You're listening to Dave's Gone By on WGBB. Nice to talk to you, Dave. Talk a little still more about like your influences then, because uh, as you said, you hadn't written a play before, and then you got a book out, a uh, sort of how-to. But then, since you became more of a playwright, were there others who influenced you? And there can be novelists too, writers that you respect and admire and learn from. Well, once I decided that I was going to make a go of being a playwright, I was advised by the guy who taught me my one theater course in in school to go to England and study. So my first influences were all British. Uh, The only American playwright I really, really uh, deeply admired was Albie. Um, And when I went to England, the the playwrights I, I loved there were Wesker, Arnold Wesker was one, Harold Tenter, of course, um, and uh, David Mercer, and a lot of playwrights that wouldn't be that well-known anymore. But um, those were the people I followed and, and, and tried to model myself on. And then while I was living there, suddenly uh, my roommate who read plays for the Royal, Court, uh, for the Royal Shakespeare Company started to send me, uh, you know, show me plays by people like, like uh, Lanford Wilson and Sam Shepard, and all the emergent Leonard Melfi, all the emerging writers from the the you know East Village. That off off Broadway movie. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The one that was discovered by a British critic, by the way, hmm. Clive Barnes, when he was on the New York Times. And I started reading these plays, and they were the first plays that were like Albie. They they actually sounded like Americans I knew, and I thought this is 
fantastic. There's a way to write American speech that sounds real. And that's what finally turned me on, was, the, was, was reading the American playwrights while I was in England. What do you do if and when you have writer's block on a project? I mean, never, I've never had it. Really? No. I mean, it's one thing when you have, like, a deadline and someone's paying you to write a screenplay and boom, you know, you've got to work through it. But even on a play that you have to drum up out of your own head from start to finish and there's not necessarily a theater waiting to have it, even then, you, you just you bang through it? Well, it's not that I bang through it. It's, uh, it, it. It just festers inside until it's ready to be written. And normally I have to have found that last little piece of the puzzle to unlock it. Sometimes it's a, it's a play that I've sat on pretty fully formed for a long time, but I haven't written it because something in me knows better than to try without this last piece of idea falling into place. And then one day I'll just be biking over the bridge or something, and I'll, I'll go, oh, of course, that's what we need. And then I can write the play. The last play that you, you had on Broadway was Spoils of War. Uh, on Broadway, yeah. On Broadway, right. Yeah. What? I had one in the West End a couple of seasons ago. What was that? What, was that? Uh, the what the Night is For. What the Night is For. What is it about Broadway? Because I'm sure you, like every other playwright, would love to have another play or two on there. But, I mean, what is it about Broadway economics? Is it possible? Is it, is it doable to have a, a new play on Broadway? Well, Proof played there and right. um, Doubt played there. But in other words, when you write a play, when you say the, you know, when you type thirty or the end or whatever it is at the very bottom of the last page, right. it, what is the first thing in your head? It, it's got to be like, can this, or maybe it isn't. What is the first thing in your head? When I finish the play. Yeah. Um, phew. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, and then I send it to a couple of trusted friends to see whether I'm out of my mind or whether this actually works. And if they seem, by and large, to um, think it's, it works, I I, um, I send it out. I, yeah, well, I send it to my agent, right, and she sends it out, and yeah. we, we see what happens. And sometimes, with my most most recent play, just a few week, actually a few days before I went out west to start rehearsing this Broadway musical, I had a reading of it, and in that very space, it's being named for me now. And uh, you know, this was a play that I hadn't done much about. I'd written it, and some people liked it, and so forth. But it wasn't really being sent anywhere. I don't know why, but I had a little reading of it put together. And then when it was over, a producer came up, a Broadway guy, and said, I want to do this play. Don't give it to anyone else. Hmm. So that's another way it gets done. Is that so we're going to be seeing that in New York at some point soon? Well, he hopes so, yeah. 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 And when you said you're rehearsing a musical out on the coast, is that Zhivago? Yeah. How's that going? Well, everybody seems very high on it. So, I mean, tell us a little bit more. It's a Broadway musical version of, of Dr. Dr. Zhivago. Zhivago. Yeah, not, not the movie, the book. It's about Fourth it's based on the book. We went back to the original material. Mm-hmm. And you're working with with uh, Lucy Simon is the is the uh, composer who did the Secret Garden. Mm-hmm. The lyricists are a team, two people. One is called Michael Corey, and the other is called Amy Powers, and it's a the first time for both of them, I think, doing a Broadway musical. So uh, that's them. And then the director is Des Mackinoff, who run, who's done a lot of Broadway musicals. So I have to assume that, like the movie, there's an element of spectacle that he would be going for. Yes, but it's very, very different than, uh, than the movie. We're, we're trying something that's 
I think, much closer in spirit to the book. There's no snow. No snow. Well, <laughs> we'll see about that. Well, no, I don't, no. I'm not responsible. I just do the words. Sure. Um, and also, I, uh, from your bio, it mentions that you're concocting a, well, one of the pastiche musical types, or so it sounds like a Fleetwood Mac. Yes, I'm working with Taylor Hackford, the, the, the director, on um, a project based on the two kind of central, uh, you know, um, records that were made by Fleetwood Mac, the, the, one, one, the one called Rumors and the right, one called and Fleetwood Mac, mm-hmm. oh, and okay. just about the, 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 the period of time when they were working on those two. And so that's going to be incorporating their music into... Yes, it's about... The it's, it's, it uses those two albums as the, as the basic, uh, uh, you know... I assume you have their blessing to do this, sir. Well, I would suggest <laughs> Taylor, yeah. <laughs> what kind of material attracts you? What plays do you find yourself wanting to write? Do you have themes that recur? Or character types? Well, I try not to be too aware of that. I mean, I do know I write in very different veins. I write it... There's one vein of me that writes in a very... sort of what would be described as a realistic style, a naturalistic style. Um, generally about people in my generation who are... who I know at first hand in some way. Mm-hmm. And then there's another vein of writing that I do which is more heroic that I wrote a, a, a play about the Klondike Gold Rush and that was in a much bigger style um, and sometimes I write in a sort of absurd comedy style I, I wrote about a, a playhouse a little like the public theater in that vein mm-hmm. and I did the play I just finished a couple of days ago is a sort of comic um, ghost story in, I don't know what style you'd say, but it's not what you normally would associate me with me, but the one that was bought for Broadway is a very naturalistic play. What's the name of that one, by the way? Which one, sorry? No, the one that was just bought for... Oh, it's called 50 Words. I'm curious to hear a little bit of, of storytelling, if there's stuff to tell, since you worked on the Ragtime movie, yeah. which, which I, I really, as I mentioned before, quite loved. And, well, the first general question is, how did you take E.L. Doctorow's novel, which is, I won't say sprawling, it's a fairly short novel, but it encompasses a lot of different characters and time frames and stuff, and bring that into a two-and-a-half-hour film. Well, the basic approach was to take um, the story that he had appropriated from, um, from the German novel, novella, to, to use as a center of his piece, and to use that as, a, as our central story, which was Kohlhaas Walker tension and, and suspense of the film and the drama, uh, focus on that story and bring in the others as somewhat subsidiary themes. The discipline that Foreman and I kind of applied to it was simply that we would kn- we knew that it was going to be episodic and we knew that we had to deal with a number of different uh, plot threads. So we, we made the, fo- the only one assumption about this, which is that no arc of story that we cut to would end before there was an action within it that was con- that concluded satisfactorily. So it wasn't about nervously cutting from thing to thing, uh, just to keep a lot of balls in the air. It mm. was it was discrete, complete arcs each time we jumped to somebody else. You don't feel jumbled. You feel very. It's, it's a wonderful film. And I have to also. I do have to ask. Did you get to meet Cagney? Oh, I, kn- I got to know him very well. You yeah. got to know him very well? Oh, yeah, yeah. Tell me some Cagney stories. 
Oh, dear, they're yeah. Asian, but the one that... I mean, he was uh, very sick at that. I mean, he could barely, at least from the stories I was reading in the paper, no, it, it was, was, it was a, an ordeal for him, and then he would do an amazing take and then slump back almost dead. Or is that just ridiculous uh, lies? No, no, that was, that's exaggerated. He, he, he actually had quite, quite an amazing amount of stamina for a guy that age. And he, what he had was diabetes, so he was, uh, he was in a wheelchair, but he was very, very alert and very robust and very energetic. Oh. And um, he, uh, in fact, he was rather funny about his acting sometimes because now and then when it was a difficult long speech or something, we had to tack the uh, speeches up in places where he could quickly refer to them if he went dry. And uh, after one take, I remember uh, Foreman said, cut, cut, perfect, perfect, James. And he said, yeah, I read that pretty good. Because <laughs> <laughs> he literally read it off of a card. But uh, what what I what impressed me about him was, you know, I at that time I had something of a reputation in, in, in theater, but none at all in film. I, I I was sort of dragooned after I'd written Hair. I, I was sort of pulled almost screaming into doing Ragtime because I was busy on some other stuff. So I really wasn't when when we were courting Cagney, going up to his farmhouse to sort of say hello and have lunch and see whether he might be interested in. Uh, in the film, I was really a junior character who was along for the ride, so I would sit very quietly and watch the the Titans kind of talk to each other and take notes and remember as much as I could of what they were saying. But I really didn't, uh, you know, think of myself in that as being there. Really, I was more a fly on the wall. But it did come out in one aside at some point when I was um, talking to Cagney that I had. You know, that I did theater, he asked me about that. And um, he asked me, you know, what it was like and tell me some stories about it. And I talked about when I had um, done a play and I I was wearing a coat that my uncle had given me that was a bombardier's coat from uh, the Second World War Mm -hmm. and that it was stolen during rehearsal. And he said, oh, my goodness, that's terrible, that's terrible. But that was all that was said. And then I felt kind of stupid for even... <laughs> Bring telling him my 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 grief, you know, and then about maybe half a year later, um, I got a call from him. That's and he said, "Now Millis tells me you're coming up to look at some land nearby here. Now I want you to drop by the farmhouse when you're when you're around and say hello." So I said, "Well, that's that's kind of sweet, you know." So I drove up and we sat and had a beer and chatted about this that, and the other. And then he, as I was leaving, he said, uh, "Didn't you forget something?" And I went, no, I don't think so, you know. He said, that's your birthday, isn't it? And it, in fact, it was. I remember I, I bought my first piece of land on my birthday, but I'd forgotten that because I was so thrilled about the land. And I said, yeah, it's my, it's my birthday. Thanks very much. I mean, that's amazing that you think of it, you know. And he said, no, 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 my pleasure, my pleasure. And I started to go. He said, hey, aren't you forgetting something? <laughs> I went, well, he said, don't you want your present? And he gave me an absolutely perfect replica of that bombardier's coat that my that wow. stolen from my you know, he knew exactly what it was so that's the kind of you know amazingly dear guy he was very thoughtful very um you know very down to earth very caring really lovely man Wow, what a wonderful story! Yes. Now, that's thank you. I'm, I'm so glad I asked, you know. Yes. But I want to congratulate you again, first thank of all, on, on getting the theater name. So it's it's being done on on September 18th. It will now be the Michael Weller Theater at 311 
West 43rd Street. Um, and it's, are, is only the Broken Watch Company going to be there, or are other companies going to be using the space, do you know? or? Well, the Broken Watch has rented the, the suite of, of offices where the theater is, mm-hmm. and they're renaming the theater you know, after me, and, right. and they'll do all of their productions there. And I presume when they're not actively producing a play themselves, they'll be able to rent it out to somebody else. You know? Now, are they obligated to, to just do your place? Yes, that was my condition. If you can use my name, but you can only do my play. Actually, one one question did occur to me. Uh, if someone commercially were to revive some of your your older plays, do you think they would, would hold up? Or sometimes do you look at some of the plays you wrote and they were really amazing for the time, but now you wonder, well, you know, thirty, twenty five years ago, maybe not. I, I don't know. I've seen, you know, periodically my plays get revived, in, as, as does everybody's plays, right. in these little playhouses here and there. And from time to time I go and see them, and, and, and they're not, you know, often wonderfully done. The actors are, are, are sort of young and, right. and experienced and all of that. And I think it's just terribly ragged, and I would never write it that way now, and it just feels to me hopelessly amateur and... and, and um, like beginner's work, but people watch it, and they watch it with, at times, a great deal more attention and appreciation than I'm watching. <laughs> so, so far, so good. I don't know, you know, really, really, if I, if, if it had to hold up in some larger venue. But the, the, the big, um, the big, I think, um, roadblock to a lot of revivals of plays of mine is that I wrote very, very big cast plays. So it's, it's um, implausible to do them. It's uh, impractical, I'm sorry, to do them on... Um, on a, on a stage where the commercial uh, considerations are, are foremost. Well, best of luck on both the films and the theater and thank your you. new theater, your thank new home, the Mikuela Theater. And thank you so much for visiting the neighborhood. My pleasure. What's playing on Broadway? I'll tell you what's playing on Broadway, and I'll do it by checking Performing Arts Insider. Off-Broadway, off-off-Broadway, off-off-off-Broadway. You keep adding offs, they'll keep adding listings. Who's in the cast? What's it about? Why is it special? Performing Arts Insider is Broadway the best way. 516-295-1511. 516-295-1511. Or see PerformingArtsInsider.com. Welcome back to Dave's Gone By. You know, I have a pretty good life. I mean it. I had a good upbringing. My parents are great. I live in a nice little house on Long Island. I have a lovely wife who just thinks the world of me, and likewise. We have two wonderful dogs. Money's tight, but, you know, I'm doing what I want to do. I love the theater, so I go to the theater all the time. I co-publish a theater magazine that I take great pride in. And, of course, I do a radio show every week. Two radio shows. This one and Filler Up at 9 o'clock. I've got some nice friends. Thank God I'm healthy. And I actually do count my blessings because I have some. Even before seeing all those people in Biloxi and New Orleans, I realized I was luckier than most. But still, there are reasons you might not want to be me. I'm short. I'm going bold. I have very limited mechanical ability. But most of all, the stuff that goes through my head. I mean, it's one of the reasons I do this show. To expunge it from my cerebrum. Get it on tape or digital minibits and get it out of me and set it free. Unleash it on the world just like any other virus. So while other people are going through their daily routines, watching baseball, filing papers, having dinner, playing with the dogs... 
I'm doing that too, only at some point my head starts messing with me, and instead of thinking normal, boring thoughts, I start thinking really goofy stuff. Deranged, like, what is he on kind of stuff. The kind of stuff that stays in my head for hours and starts me laughing for no apparent reason while someone is trying to hold a serious conversation with me. The most recent example of this happened just a weekend ago. My wife and I were heading out for lunch, and before that we had the TV on, just flipping channels, trying not to watch the September 11th memorials, which were on every channel except home shopping and MSNBC. For some reason, they were still busy with Hurricane Katrina when they weren't busy with Natalie Holloway. Anyway, for the third year in a row at Ground Zero, They've got the people up there reading the names of the casualties from 9-11. And the written crawl on the screen has the names also. It's still really sad and infuriating because we're still looking for bin Laden and obviously unprepared for disasters, natural or man-made, and yada, yada, yada. So after these perfectly normal responses meander through my head, the sadness, the disappointment, the anger... I'm struck with an attack of the what-ifs. Those are the most dangerous things for any creative person. Those are the things that keep people like me sane and berserk in equal measure. And the what-if that traveled through my sick, sick mind at that instant was, what if Sesame Street's Ernie was killed in the Twin Towers on 9-11? I know, unlikely, Bert would certainly have been more likely to be working at, say, Cantor Fitzgerald, or maybe Tully would have had a pretzel stand on Vesey Street. But that is not what zipped through my brain last week. It was distinctly, specifically Ernie among those 3,000 names. But worse than that, going up and reading the eulogy for him would be Cookie Monster. Bert might have done, you know, in the first year or two, but he's moved on. And now that it's the fourth anniversary... It seemed right that another Muppet should do the honors. And just the image of Cookie Monster with those googly eyes and the blue fur and the big indistinct tummy standing at the lectern with a big American flag behind him and a model of the Twin Towers on the dais, Cookie Monster having to deliver this memorial for his dead friend Ernie. I know it's retarded. I know it's an absolutely disgusting taste. But for the next two days, that is all I could think about. I was driving my wife crazy with the voice and constantly goofing on it and thinking more and more of funny lines. The result? Well, lucky you. You'll get to hear them right now in this delightful skit, which is brought to you by the letter E and the number 2. Orlando Ellers, Ossining, New York. Howard Embleth, Yonkers, New York. Shira Epstein, Freehold, New Jersey. Josephine Epps, Gramercy Park, New York. Ernie, Sesame Street. And here is his good friend to say a few words. <coughs> oh, Ernie, was not you time? Ernie, friend to everybody, even monster. Oh, Ernie, you're too young. You like cookie, fresh from oven. No have time get stale. Oh, Ernie, why me no die too? Ernie, brother, me never had. 
When me get sad loose from Snuffleupagus, me no believe me say is joke like any play on me. Me remember time he switched cookie for big letter L. Me so mad, me no talk only two weeks, but then he baked me big batch cookies and they so good. Me forgive you, Oni. Now he go. Oh, Oni. Oni, but miss you. Even though he now live with Mr. Noodle. But keep rubber ducky on the pillow because it smell like you, Oni. Oh, sometimes me dream twin towers too big lady finger cookie. But they not. And... And Pentagon look like tasty gingerbread cookie. And White House, big black and white cookie with icing. Oh, me want cookie. No, no, me too sad. Only dead, me no eat cookie. Me now see only face in every cookie. How me eat only face cookie. Oh, but so good. No. Ernie, well, Ernie no mind, he want me be happy, he want me eat cookie, think of him, no, no, me can't, oh, Ernie, me hungry with grief, maybe one bite in memory, yeah, yeah, oh, tasty dead Ernie face, oh, oh, Oscar Grouch say he hate Ernie, but is not true. Oscar no like Elmo, but nobody had Ernie. Ernie love. If Al-Qaeda meet Ernie, they no blow up cookie. I, I mean tower. Oh, Ernie cookie face good. Maybe one more bite. Oh, God bless America. Oh, oh come it way by me. He said I out of time. And count one count want to update death toll before I go. I say goodbye, friend only. You in heaven with Mr. Hooper and crazy guy who played David. I hope you have many, many cookie. Oatmeal cookie, fudge cookie, chocolate chip, nina wafer. Oh only no more cookie, like no more onion. Oh, <laughs> okay, okay. Oh, so long, Oni. Me salute you. E is for Oni. That's good enough for me. Bye bye. Come on, rise up. Come on.
is for Dave, F is for fun, S is for silly and special, X is for excellent entertainment, D, F, S, X, Internet Radio, playing vintage episodes of Dave's Gone By, Thursday nights at 8 and 11. It's part of Live 365, but all you've got to do is visit davesgoneby.org. Click the link and listen online to classic Dave's Gone By, Thursdays 8 and 11. DFSX letters that stand for terrific. Welcome back to Dave's Gone By, or should I say Weller? Come back to Dave's Gone By. Special thanks to my guest in the neighborhood, Michael Weller. I love that story about Jimmy Cagney and the jacket, and he told another nice one at the ribbon cutting ceremony for the Michael Weller Theater. And that happened uh, two Sundays ago. The ribbon was taped to the two walls across the stage of the small black box theater. And one side kept falling off during the presentation. Finally, one of the actors had to just stand there and hold the ribbon up against the wall. But Michael came up and he gave a heartfelt and grateful speech telling a little more in depth about making the cross from composer to playwright. He had gone to a playwriting class where the instructor was really known to be tough and uncompromising and intimidating and honest. And all the students in the class were cowed by him, and they took their cues from his tastes. So if he said something wasn't too good, that was everybody's cue to get their knives out, as Weller put it. So they all read Michael Weller's first play, and the teacher says, okay, there's lots of problems with this play. There are holes in the structure that you could drive not one, but two trucks through. And Michael is just sitting there, cringing, listening to this. And he can tell that his fellow comrades are filing their teeth to draw more blood. But then the teacher said, yeah, the play has big problems. But it's also the best and most exciting thing I've read in 20 years. And that was the moment, Weller said. And you could tell he still remembered, like it was yesterday, that that was the moment he knew playwriting would be his direction his talent. So here's looking forward to seeing more of Michael Weller's talent on view in plays and musicals very soon. Thank you, by the way, to Joe Trentacosta of Springer Associates for setting all that up. Thank you also to my loyal sponsors, including the copy kings of Hewlett, Long Island, Hewlett Minuteman Press, 516-569-5577, six days a week. And if you love Broadway and off-Broadway, maybe this show has given you a taste for all things theatrical, get yourself a copy or a subscription to Performing Arts Insider. All the info is at performingartsinsider.com. And hey, davesgoneby.org is the place to visit for tons of information about this program. There are song lyrics, links to the websites of guests we've had on the show. You can find out about my book, Marriage, Babies, and the End of the World, which makes a great Rosh Hashanah gift, and also how to get CD copies of dozens of past episodes of the show. I've had a bunch of people emailing to say how much they enjoyed last week's program with uh, Rabbi Saul Solomon and Jill Sobule. They want to hear it again, or they want a friend to hear it. That CD and all the rest are on sale at the website, davesgoneby.org. And my site is also the focal point, the hub, if you will, from which you can listen to Dave's Gone By at other times besides Thursdays at 7. Live365.com is a cable radio portal 
they have been airing best of episodes of Dave's Gone By since the beginning of the year. Life 365 is kind of like satellite radio, only you don't need a special machine and you don't have to pay for it. It's free cable radio. There are commercials. If you don't want to hear them, then you have to pay for an upgrade. But otherwise, just go on the internet, find a channel that interests you, and tune in. The Best of Dave's Gone By airs on the DFSX radio channel Thursday nights at 8 and 11 Eastern. And you know what? It also airs early Thursday mornings at 4, in case I have any vampire fans who want to finish off their evenings with a glass of plasma and a few laughs. Anyway, I know that all sounds confusing, which is why there's a link at davesgoneby.org to DFSX. So just use my website as your fulcrum and everything radiates from there. I have no idea what I'm talking about. Okay, also remember that I'm on WGBB again one hour from now, hosting the all-music show, Filler Up. I pick the songs, I play the songs, I talk about the songs, but only a little. So, if you're sick of my yap-yap here, you might prefer Filler Up, because that's really about the music. Tonight, great stuff. Very mellow, old CBS FM kind of lineup with Johnny Mathis, Jerry Lee Lewis, Fleetwood Mac, T-Rex, Don McLean, and a special tribute to Groucho Marx, who was born October 2nd, 1890. That's all on Filler Up tonight at 9 on WGBB. Big thank you, as always, to Program Director Tom Ross. Thanks also to my beloved and wonderful wife, Joyce. And thanks to every single person listening. I hope you enjoyed the show. And I hope you'll be back with me next Thursday, October 6th. Until then, don't miss your days going by. This is Dave Lefkowitz. Good night, be well, be weller, and gone by. I will go my way and jump ahead this first. Drink the clear, clean water for to quench my thirst. Thank you.